Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, we're continuing along in our first, period, first Peter series, and the, the series we're on right now, it could, I guess, have two, two titles or subtitles. It could either be called <clears throat> Doing Good or How to Suffer as a Christian. And in Peter's worldview, the truth is those two things are pretty related. Because his argument is, if you do what is good with great commitment in a hostile world, then chances are that commitment to goodness will call you to suffer. And so both themes have been woven throughout these messages. Today, I believe that we're going to take a slight turn, but it's going to be very related. And the next week, we'll finish off the series on suffering in the midst of doing good. Now, I think the culture or society you live in has a great deal to do with how you read the Bible. And so it's no surprise to me that in an individualistic culture like the United States has, that most people read the majority of the Bible as an individual message. A big God to a little me, but it's a very direct one-to-one communication, often regarded as a private thing. But the truth is that the majority of the New Testament was written to a groups of people, to the church, not simply to one individual. And even those letters written to one person were intended to be read aloud, distributed and shared among the church. So that the, the net effect is the things that God says to us in the Bible aren't meant for one person's edification, but are best expressed and obeyed in the context of a community of believers. Does that make sense to you? And and just to gather some data for my conclusion, I asked a a, a number of people, when you read this passage, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, what do you see? What do you see? And most people told me back, and these are some trained Bible professionals, they said, well, there's a lot of individual teaching on how a good Christian should act in the midst of suffering. And so that confirmed what I thought, we always tend to read the Bible as just for me and neglect how powerfully it speaks to us. So this morning, we're going to look at this passage and realize that it's not the individual Christian in view here. It is, in fact, the entire church that is in view. So let's, let's continue. Let's read the passage together. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's the word of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift... Thank you, Lord. I will refrain from making any comments. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace... In its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. You know, I'm not so sure that this is the feel-good passage of the year because the opening words of this text are, the end of all things is near. 
Now, maybe, I don't know, you're, you're too young to remember, there were days in the 50s and 60s and 70s when people would walk around with sandwich board signs that said the end is near, they would wave signs, and they were so convinced, I, I don't know why, but for some reason during that period of time, people were so obsessed with the idea that the world was coming to an end. There are still people like that around today, but this is not something that usually makes people feel good to hear. The end of all things is near. But that is, in fact, what sets the foundation for how we read all the rest of this. The end, in fact, is near. And the end that Peter has in mind is the return of Jesus Christ when everything we know will come to a close. And as we mentioned last week, God will reboot the system of the universe and everything will be made new and everything wrong will be made right. And God will weigh and judge all humanity that has ever lived and things will be settled. Accounts will be closed once and for all. That is a day that is coming. And whether you believe in it or not seems to me somewhat irrelevant because it's going to happen and disbelief will not spare you on that day. You will not stand before God any more than you will stand before the IRS and just say, well, I didn't believe that you guys really wanted my tax money. I mean, belief is one thing, but belief in itself cannot make a thing true or untrue. What is, is. And if this is the truth, then you need to align your life with this truth right now. The end is near, and when it comes, everything that is known to us will be finished, and something new will take its place. But there's something else that Peter had in mind, because there were many uh, prophetic utterances given about what the world would be like as the end approaches. One of them was given to us Excuse me, by the Apostle Paul in his letter to, to his spiritual son Timothy. In 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, and I chose the New Living Translation because I think it speaks very clearly to this. Listen to how Paul describes the, the, near, the, the days near the end to us. You should all also know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and have no interest in what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act as if they are religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. You must stay away from people like that. The crazy thing is when you're reading these parts, you're like, oh, he's talking about the world. But on this end, you realize he's talking about people in the church in the end days. I mean, this is what people who are religious on the outside but empty on the inside look like to God. I say amen to that. One of the ugliest things on earth is a person who appears religious but has no real love of God in their heart. And what Paul is saying is in the, in the end days, even people who say that they are Christians, well, their lives will be a disgusting mess of hypocrisy, duplicity, lies, deception, even self-deception. And if that's the way the church looks, imagine what the world around us will look like in the end days. It sounds to me like he's just basically described much of America and the world we live in today. It's a pretty accurate description of how people are. 
In, against that backdrop, Peter says, listen, that is the context in which you and I are called to an incredible commitment to doing good. Is it any wonder then that if you run so clearly against the grain of our world, well, somebody's going to have a, bad, a, a, a little trouble with that. You're going to have a bad time of it because the way we're called to live is so different than the way the world seems to settle in default mode. And so he gives us some admonitions. Again, none of these things were written to individual Christians, but saying, what, the, what should the church look like if its members are called to live for God in a hostile world like this? You may have mentioned to others, you know, oh, we have a good church, or oh, that's a good church. What does it mean for a church to be good? And as you go through these things here with me, I want you to hear this message not in terms of how are they doing or how is the church doing, but really how are you doing? Because how you're doing in each of these things ultimately adds up to how we're doing as a church. Unless you include yourself as the object of this teaching, our church will simply remain as it is. And the first thing we see here is that the good church prays. Those kids cracked me up. I stared at that picture a long time this week. A good church prays. Take a look at what it says. The end of all things is near. And therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled. Now, in most Asian churches, that would be the end of the sentence, and we'd be so blessed. Be clear-minded, grasshopper, and self-control. Amen. But why should it end there? Because it isn't to be clear-minded and self-controlled just so we can reach nirvana. It is for a purpose. Be, be clear-minded and self-controlled. Why? So that you can pray. The focus of the passage is the end is near, so pray. In other words, if you're going to live for God in a world like this, you will not make it unless you are praying. The good church is the church that prays. And i got to tell you, the six of us at prayer meeting this past Thursday had a good long talk about this. What does it mean when a church prays? What does a prayerful church look like? We concluded it's not entirely based on who attends prayer meeting, but that's a small part of it, isn't it? What does it look like when a group of people is truly committed to prayer? Now, I know that we all know we're supposed to pray. I don't think that's the barrier. I don't need to stand up here and tell you, you should pray more. Everybody I ask about prayer, their eyes hit the floor. Have you noticed? Just go up to any other Christian and go, hey, how's your prayer life? How many times out of a hundred are you going to find someone go, oh, it's awesome. I, I was like in seventh heaven last night. And, and you know, most people are like, yeah, you know, I should pray more. They, they can't even look at you anymore when they're talking. It's so funny. They look straight at the ground. Our prayer lives, we know we're supposed to pray. But the question is, do we really want to pray? The real, the real barrier in prayer, I believe, is not one of duty, but of motivation. Why is it that prayer is such a difficult thing for us to get motivated for? We're mentioning on Thursdays, it's so much easier to get people out for a party than for a prayer meeting. And that's a curious thing, because at a party, you've got to bring a gift and spend money. But at a prayer meeting, you get the riches of God, and yet it's so much harder to give away God's riches than to ask for yours. And that, to me, is a strange paradox of the Christian life. Well, I think Peter acknowledges this, just like every good Christian leader acknowledges, prayer is not a simple thing. It's not the kind of thing that's popular to do. So we've got to address head-on, why is it 
that we don't want to pray. And Peter gives two, two things that would remedy that. He says, there are two preconditions for a life committed to prayer. And one is to be clear-minded. That is literally to be in your right mind, or in other translations, it's given as sane. Be sane. Because if you have a distorted reality, if the way you look at life is all screwed up, you are never going to stop to think prayer is important. If, for example, you believe that your sense of worth is tied up in how you do in your company, how, how far you advance in your position, how much money you make, what you drive, or, or where you live, if you think that's what's important, prayer is not going to be very important to you because your sense of values, your sense of how the world works is so distorted, it is so off from what it's supposed to be, that God cannot possibly be included in the everyday fabric of your life. I'm convinced that most prayerless people are actually godless people. And I don't mean godless and like, oh, they're pagans and they're terrible. I mean godless mathematically. You've heard me say this before. Mathematical godlessness is somehow knowing about God, but every day in your life, God is conspicuously absent from the equation. It's like you think, you you say you're a Christian, you're supposed to know God, and yet from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to bed at night, God has not been really included as a key variable in anything that happens during the day. A lot of stuff happens, we say and think and do a lot of things, but where is God along that journey? And the sad truth for a lot of people is He's just not there. He's kind of like that painting of Jesus you have on your dining room wall at your parents' house. You're so used to seeing it, it's invisible to you. The only time you'd notice it, it was completely taken away, right? And you go, hey, where's the picture of Jesus? That's the way God is in so many of our lives. We are mathematically godless people. That's why it doesn't bother us not to pray, because talking to God is not a troubling thing when God isn't there most of the time, is it? And so he says, be clear-minded. Have your head on straight about what's real and how all of this works. God is very real. He is the most important person that you can include in anything. And if you've somehow lost sight of that, it's no wonder that prayer will be about the last thing you're motivated to do. He also says, be self-controlled. That's about having good judgment. That's about not letting anything else seduce or intoxicate you or or kind of overtake you and influence you. You know, sometimes my kids protest when I ask them to do something. I say, hey, do this. And you know what they say in protest? Oh, but that's no fun. That's not fun. And what I want to say is, who the heck told you that everything has to be fun? Where on earth do we get this notion that if it isn't fun, it isn't worth doing? Do you have any idea how many not fun things make this world go around? How many of you like brushing your teeth? Raise your hand if you're one of those freaks that enjoys toothbrushing. We want to know who you are, yes. (laughs) Don't trust those people. They're unstable. You know, the truth is I hate brushing my teeth. And I brush so vigorously I get forearm aches when I'm done. It's a necessary evil. And even then, my teeth look like I've been on a a ship at sea for like 20 years. Imagine what they look like if I didn't brush. You know, things don't have to be fun in order to be worth doing or to be important. And yet that's one of the great American seductions. It's one of those things that has somehow swept in and just grabbed hold of us and intoxicated us. And, And so a lot of translations render that word sober. Like, don't be drunk on any other way of thinking. Don't lose your mind. 
We have become drunk on entertainment so that it's no longer a spice on the table. It is one of the staples of our diet. If it's not entertaining, we almost not even consider doing it. And that's an example of the kind of seduction that drives people from prayer. You know why people don't want to pray? What's fun about prayer meeting? Well, six to eight of us who come, it's actually kind of fun. I have to tell you, I look forward to that part of Thursdays. But if I'm going to be completely honest, prayer is not one of the things I do like on my free day. I go, oh, I'm going to have a whole free day. I can't wait to pray for like six hours because that would be way better than playing my Xbox 360 for sure. It's the wrong answer. That's dishonest. There are a lot of things I'd rather do than pray if fun was the goal. But if surviving, thriving, if living victoriously is the goal, then there's few things I could think of doing better than praying. Are you sober about what life is like? Have you ever met somebody who just seems a little bit under the influence all the time? Like they never seem, you know, they're 30, 40 years old. They never, it seems like they never outgrew sophomore year of high school. They're still like, dude, I got so wasted over the weekend. You're like, yeah. When are you going to grow up and reach puberty and like become one of us adults? You know, there are some people who never quite get off that stuck part of the needle on the record. This is what we're talking about. Sobriety is really said simply growing up and waking up and realizing prayer is only important to people who take life seriously. And if you don't take life very seriously, then it's no wonder prayer is not a very important thing to us. And so he says, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that we can be committed as a church to prayer. So how are you doing when it comes to prayer. Do you realize how powerful, how potent prayer is? What a gift it is to us that we can simply close our eyes and talk to heaven and heaven answers back. And if you guys know that annoying person, maybe it's me, you always call their cell phone and they never answer. They never, ever answer. You call expecting voicemail and you're genuinely surprised and flustered when you get a person on the other end, right? God's not like that. Every time you call him, he picks up the phone. Do you realize what a gift that is to us as human beings? And if we understood that, prayer would not be such a hurdle for us. So I'm asking you now, how are you doing in your prayer life? If you're not showing up on Thursdays, I, I hope to God you're praying somewhere. Because it, life is so hard that if you are not praying, then you are not winning. If you are not praying, you will not make it to the end. It has been my sad experience to watch a number of my friends reach midlife and simply walk away from Jesus Christ. If you're not praying, you're not going to finish this. I guarantee you that. You won't finish. And how you're doing in prayer adds up to how we're doing as a church in praying. If you're not praying, then we're not a praying church. I don't care how many prayer vigils and prayer meetings we have. If you're not praying, then we're not a praying church. And I want to remind you that the stakes are high and prayer is important. It's another thing that a good church does. A good church loves. I had to go into Photoshop and erase some of the more offending messages on the heart candies. Um, the most prominent one was kiss me. I, I didn't think that really had a lot to do with the message. But a good church loves. Look at what it says. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. 
You know, it's, it's sad that sometimes the most religious people are the least loving and then sometimes the least lovable of the people you'll meet. Have you noticed that? Some of the most religious people are the least loving people you'll meet. And I think Peter knew that. And that's why he says, above all, in case all the Pharisees are high-fiving each other over the call to prayer, right? Above all, love each other deeply. Because if you're praying 18 hours a day and you're not loving, you've missed the entire boat and you're stuck on the island. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. I love that word deeply, and it's a very potent word in the Greek. It's a word that, if you could, you know, a lot of Greek words paint word pictures in the mind. And so the word that that, that is translating, it, it describes an athlete who's straining every muscle. Do you remember when Michael Phelps won the medal just by that last surge where most people are like, I don't want to hit the wall? He's like, I don't care if I hit the wall. He surges forward, and by just the merest fraction, he wins the race. It's that kind of effort with which God calls us to love. It's that, I know I'm near the end of the race, but I'm not letting down one last push, one last surge. It is that kind of persisting, persevering, straining love which God has in view here. It is not the love of sentiment or casuality. It is a love that is inconvenient. It's a love that is sacrificial It is a love that is about exertion of ourselves for somebody else. Don't ever let that picture leave your mind. The kind of love that describes Christian love is not sort of this casual, yeah, I like that guy a lot, he's kind of cool. It's easy to love him. That does not portray Christian love. Christian love is most clearly on display when it requires exertion. When all others are tempted to let down and quit, it gives one last push. I'd be willing to bet that you're at that point with a number of people in your life. I'm there with at least a few people. Where everything in me says, just let it go. You don't need to be part of their life anymore. You have done more than enough and everyone would pat you on the back and say, I don't know how you even lasted that long. And there's a side of me that hears that and goes, yeah, totally. I am justified in kicking that person to the curb. They've been like gum stuck on my shoe for years. I'm getting rid of this now. And that's the way you feel when you've loved and loved and you keep hitting a brick wall. Some people get to that point in their own marriage. Isn't that scary? And some of us are at that place where we're just saying, I don't think there's anything left. I keep scooping and the ice cream scooper comes up with nothing. I mean, it's just there's nothing left in the love bucket for you. And Christ says, that's why prayer is important, because if you're a Christian, you never run out. That's the one thing we need to remember. Christian love is a deep, exerting love. And each time we exert ourselves, God is faithful to fill that jar with a little bit more. I think the reason we don't discover that is because before we put that to the test, we give up before God does. We give up before love gives out, because we become quite offended, quite self-righteous, and we're up to our ears with frustration with a particular person. You know, think about that person you find least easy to love, and that ultimately is the measure in your life of how loving a person you truly are. Let me give you a newsflash. Everyone can love a nice guy. Everyone. You, You are not a hero of love because you love nice people. Real love, the kind Jesus portrayed, is the ability to love someone like you. 
and me. No, it's not just you. Okay? And me. Think of yourself when you hate yourself and God still loves you. And that's the kind of love which we picture here. Whenever you're tempted to give up on love, remember that in a good church, the kind of love that is practiced is a straining, generous, exerting love. And what's interesting, it says, when that kind of love is present, it covers over a multitude of sins. Here's what I believe that means. Have you noticed that when you decide not to like someone, it's not very hard to find reasons not to like them. I mean, you know, the, the truth is, if I decided, for example, that I don't like Hans, I have to pick on him every sermon. I just said, you know, Hans is not a good guy. I'm just, I've just decided I don't like him. It's amazing how many reasons I'll find to go on not liking him. You know why? Because Hans stinks. Just like I stink. The truth is, in any church you walk into, there will be a multitude of sins. Don't be all like, oh, Christians sin. Christians sin all the time. You sin every day. You're probably sinning right now, some of you. Come on, are you not? Some of you are sinning right now. The truth is that you walk into any house of God and there will be a multitude of sins. I don't know that on this side of Christ's return, we're ever going to sweep that floor completely clean. It's sort of like our kitchen floor at home. You sweep and you broom, whatever. It's never clean. There's debris all the time. You know why? Because I have four children who don't believe in plates and napkins. They think the floor is their plate. And they're always eating. And because they're always eating, it's never going to be clean. That's the way it works. In this church, there will always be a multitude of sins. And if you're looking for a reason not to like a group of people, you're not going to be a genius to find millions of them here, okay? Don't be like, oh, I can't believe I'm... You're not a genius. You just have eyes. We stink. We are not an easy group of people to live among. But I defy you to find a group that is easy to live among. Everyone fails. Everyone betrays. Everyone falls short, including the very person who's complaining about it. Now, how are we going to deal with that? Well, we'll work hard at getting better. Okay, I mean, that's something we shouldn't give up on. We will work hard at getting better at all of this. But it says the kind of love which Jesus calls us to give to each other, well, that has the effect of covering over a multitude of sins. You know, the, the lazy way to sweep a room is not to use a dustpan, but to sweep it under the rug. And that's actually what he pictures here. You can't get rid of all the dirt. Sometimes what you've got to do is just decide to overlook it. Pretend it's not there. You know why that's so hard to do? Because when we're not accustomed to loving, love is like a muscle. It's got to get exercised. And when we haven't exercised it, it shrinks so that it's harder and harder to make space to let things go. Think about some of the people you know in your life who can't let anything go. They're offended 24 hours. You know, they remind me of people uh, like in a burn ward who have lost all their skin and everything. The wind blows and a burn victim, I'm telling you, just the wind changes a little direction. They go, ow. Because they're so raw, so sensitive, everything that touches them wounds them. And when you have not practiced love, there's no space in your heart for anybody else. You shrink inside as a human being. You become completely intolerant and impatient as a person. And that's happening to some of us right now. 
Let's just be honest with each other. That's happening to some of us right now. We are incessantly complaining and so hypersensitive because we have given up on our commitment to love and it's shrunk us inside as people. And so Peter says, love one another deeply because if you do that and that grabs hold of a group of people, a remarkable thing happens. Little things are just covered over and we can live with each other in the midst of being imperfect brings out the best in us. So how are we doing? How are you doing at loving people the way Jesus called us to love? Can I just tell you, that person you're thinking about giving up on, don't give up on them. God has deposited that exact person in your life to teach you what love looks like. The good church also welcomes. How many of you come to church, this church, only in the last six months or so. Would you raise your hands? If you're new to our church in the last six months. Now keep your hands raised. How many in the last year? Okay, so a fair number of you are a good measure of how welcoming this church is. And the fact that you're still here means maybe you've done a few things right, I hope. But you know, the truth is, it's a scary thing to be out in the, the open market. It's almost as scary as being dating again. You know what I'm saying? Like... Uh, <laughs> I thank God so much I'm not single today because I think I wouldn't know how to date. I'd be such a goof. It's scary to be out there looking for something, looking for someone. And when you're looking for a church, it's a little bit like dating. You're like, I don't know if these people are going to like me, and I don't know if I'm going to like them. And, and there's this sort of like cautionary period. And the thing that opens hearts is whether they're truly welcoming. And you know it. When somebody's sort of that, you know that car salesman? I'm sorry if there's any car salesman here. There once were a couple, and I offended them greatly. But you know how, like, when you walk in and the car salesman is so smarmy, but you know that he doesn't really like you? He just wants you to buy a car from him so he gets a commission? A lot of people pick up on that right away. But sometimes you'll meet somebody who meets you for the first time, and you feel like you just stepped into their foyer at their house or something. It's a warmth there. And that's what we're talking about. A good church welcomes. Listen to what it says. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Maybe you have mixed feelings about hospitality. Hospitality is kind of an uncomfortable thing. I travel a lot for ministry, and it happens that I now have friends in just about every city in these here United States. Right? I mean, I can pick any city and find someone to stay with. And so what happens is when I'm going somewhere, I'll usually call ahead and say, hey, I'm coming into town, you want to have dinner? And that person will, will, will say this to me, hey, don't stay in a hotel, you got to stay at my house. Come on, you got to stay with us. And the funny thing is, even though I'm a pastor and people is my business, there's this hesitancy that wells up in me. Do you ever feel that? Like, ooh, actually, you know why? Partly because I don't want to be an imposition. Partly because I don't like strange smells and strange places and strange protocols. And I, I don't like sleeping, you know, like in another person's bed that isn't just everybody's bed. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I like a little bit of control over my day. I don't want to be told what time to get up and when we're having dinner and what we're eating. I like to go to my restaurant of my choice on my hours and do whatever I want. I like to walk into a hotel room and just take off my pants. All right? A little too much information. But you know... <laughs> I can't just do that at my friend's house, can I? People do weird stuff in hotel rooms they'd never do at home, right? And so I'm kind of thinking in the back of my mind, 
I like the invitation. I feel warmed by it. But I kind of like the control of staying in my own room. I go to conferences sometimes and I check in a room and I walk in and there's some other dude already in there. And I go, oh, this is one of those conferences. We're sharing hotel rooms. And I get disappointed. But the funny thing is when you just let it run its course, every time I've accepted the invitation or just said hello to my roommate, Three days later, we're like hugging each other, going, dude, stay in touch. We are good friends. Because hospitality, whenever it's offered and accepted, as awkward as it is to get over that initial hump, it has a positive effect on relationships. When you exercise hospitality, it brings people together. It always does, no matter how you feel about it at first blush. So I want to give you a little formula. For those of you who are math and physics majors, this will be helpful for you, okay? You just compute this. Run this through your processor. You know, open homes plus open hands equals open hearts. You like that? Open homes plus open hands equals open hearts. You, you know, a lot of people have said to me, "Do you know what made me stay at this church?" I was a stranger, first-time visitor, and this person who said hello to me in fellowship hall—they were just like, "Hey, some of us are grabbing lunch at this restaurant. You want to come with us?" And they said it surprised them because they didn't know these people from Adam. They were total strangers, and yet these people asked them to come eat lunch with them and brought them into that warm table fellowship from the first day that they came to this church. And that made such an indelible impression. It was a taste that lingered in their mouth after they left. You know, let me tell you something. When people leave this church, they don't remember the sweet honey-like taste of this world-class sermon I'm preaching. Okay, I wish that's what people remember. Oh man, don't even talk to me right now. The sermon is swirling around like goodness in my belly. You know, that's not what goes on here. Most people can't even remember what I talked about once they start eating a donut downstairs. They have no idea. I hope the Holy Spirit continues working through the sermon, but the truth is the flavor on their lips when they leave is how things went relationally with you. That's what keeps somebody coming back or never coming back, is how things went in that fellowship hall. Now, I like to say to myself, oh, they're coming for the preaching. And maybe that's partly true. But, you know, they'll stay if there's room for them, if they feel welcomed. And it's funny, when I kind of run into a group of people unexpectedly at a restaurant, and they're already having a good time, and I say, hey, can I just sit with you guys for a little while? If they're really quick to make space at the table, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, here, and they make room, I stay a while. But if I see a lot of, ooh, who wants to, where, where are you going to go? Should I move here? Do you want to sit there? And if there's a lot of drama, I kind of lose my taste for joining them. I go, you know what, you guys already look like you're having a good time. I'll see you later. I have no friends. And I, I leave kind of sad because, you know why? There was no room for me. That table was full. It already had its full complement of relationships, and I was an extraneous entity. That's extra for those of you who didn't do well in the SAT. It's, I mean, it's just like you feel like, hey, what, what am I doing here? I'm not needed. I'm extra. This church doesn't need any more people. Everybody's got enough friends. And an amazing thing happens when we open up the group and make space at the table, the person actually might sit down and stay a while. You know, it's interesting to me, and how many times have I said this to you guys, how long I've walked with some of you and never seen the inside of your home. And I hope that some of you have seen the inside of my home. We tried, Jeannie and I, 
fairly conscientiously to get around to as many of you as we can, invite you in our home. But the thing is, I'm not the one you should worry about. I don't want to get 18 emails like I always do inviting me to your houses after this sermon. What I want to say to you is, if you're in your community group with a bunch of people, and you've been walking and doing life together for a while, and you have not routinely seen the inside of one another's homes, I think that's, there's something wrong with that. There's something unhealthy about that. I believe that to see the inside of a person's home is to cross a significant boundary in relationship. You know, home is viewed in American culture as my castle, fully equipped with a moat and a drawbridge. Okay? I mean, that's the way we like to think of it. Is It's my sacred ground, thou shalt not enter. I have six trolls at the, at the gate making sure nobody comes in uninvited. You know what's the rudest thing you can do in America? Is to just knock on someone's door and go, Hey! I just dropped by because I wanted to see you. And you're like, you didn't even call. I'm sitting in my underwear and the house is a mess. You know, in every other culture in the developing world, that's like the greatest moment of the day. Oh, who is it? You know, the sound of a knocking door in America is always like, who could that be? Huh. Or you say to the kids, everyone be quiet, shh, pretend we're not here. Why is it such an unwelcome sound in America? Why? Because we don't know the first thing about hospitality around here. You know, the truth is, even an unannounced visit should be viewed as a good thing. The people in our lives are guests, not intruders. It's funny how we sometimes start thinking of anyone who walks in my home as an invader of that space. And some of us, we have very nice homes precisely because no one ever gets to come in and mess it up. Please let me come to your house and break a chair. I did that at Crystal and David's house. That I felt so bad, but not that bad because it's like, oh, I left a mark there. Lamb, you know, I, I left my mark behind. They didn't even ask me to pay for it. That's what made me feel so close to them. They didn't send me an invoice in the mail. It's like, I broke their chair for free. We're friends now. Amen? You're not friends until you've broken something at somebody's house, right? There's, an, there's a, an, uh, a friend that always reminds me of hospitality. Jeannie, you know who this is? This is my good friend, Lane Morikawa. He lives in the big island of Hawaii, and I'm not that angry at him about it. You know, most people who live in Hawaii, I'm bitter at. But this brother, man, when we, when we went to visit Hawaii, he rolled out the red carpet for us. And I think this is a good definition of hospitality the way the Bible teaches it. Hospitality is offering what it would be awkward to ask for. It is knowing that the person might need this or want this, and you offer it before they have to go through the discomfort of asking you for it. That's what Lane did for me. By the way, this is not some devil symbol you do at heavy metal concerts. This is how you say, all right. You know, this is like a thumbs up in Hawaii, but they add the pinky because they're Hawaiian. And my friend Lane rolled it out, man. He talked to his uncle. He got us a beautiful beachfront condo in Kona to use for free. He let me use his family's personal car to drive the entire circumference of the island and use it for three days. I mean, he just he canceled his schedule for three days, let us hang out with him, showed us every little corner of the island. We ate at all the native spots. I got the full Kama Aina discount on the golf courses and the stores through him. It was the most incredible trip And you know what? It was Lane and his hospitality that made it so great. It was also Lane and his hospitality that allowed me and Jeannie to spend a week in Hawaii for $500, including airfare. Think about that. I mean, this brother 
knows hospitality. And when I think about going above and beyond to welcome someone, he made me feel like he welcomed me onto his private island. Do you get that? We slept in his kid's room that first night. It was just, you know, it was such a feeling of warmth. And I want to tell you something. This is the way friends open each other's hearts. It often begins with an open home and some open hands. There's a British essayist who once wrote, his name is Max Beerbohm, he wrote, One might well say that mankind is divisible into two great classes, hosts and guests. Let me tell you, each, one, each of us will be one or the other of those numerous times over the course of a life. And I think in a way, how a guest is welcomed by the hosts is a real measure of whether a church is a good church or not. On that count, how are we doing as a church? I'm going to give you one last thing, just because I think it's important and because Peter wrote about it, and that is that a good church serves. A good church serves. Listen to what it says. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides. You know what I see in that passage? Is I see that, first of all, it's affirmed that each one of us has a gift. And I know you've heard that before, but I wonder if you've really thought it through. Okay? A spiritual gift, let me define it for you. It's a supernatural enablement to be very effective at something, ministry-wise. Here's another way of saying it. Every last one of you in this room who is a born-again Christian has something that if you did it in service of God, it would be explosive in its effectiveness. In other words, people will be saying to one another in restaurants when you're not there, you know, you know what it is about Hans? Every time he plays that bass, I get blessed. It's like it's every, boom, I'm, oh, you know, my soul jumps a little bit. Because somehow when he does what God blesses in his life, it has a supernaturally strong impact on me. You know, a lot of people can sing, but some people make you want to cry. How many of you guys heard Luther Vandross' song, Dance With My Father? Any of you heard that song? Oh, shame on you. If you haven't heard that song, you've got to get that. It's the one song on my iPod I've been listening to almost nonstop lately. And Luther, anyone could have sang that song, but when Luther sings it, it makes me want to cry. I don't know. And I think that's some kind of a gift, right? It's, this, and, and, and it's, it's like this. In the church, God has given you a spiritual gift so that when you do it, in God's ministry, it will be extraordinarily impactful. What is that gift? And here's the thing. If you don't explore that gift just by obeying God and doing ministry, you'll never know what it is that God's deposited in you, that if you finally start doing it, it will set the church on fire. What is it that if you do it, it will cause a ripple to run through this church, and there will be an incredible fruitfulness from it. That is a spiritual gift. And this is the truth. Every one of us has one thing which God has given us, that if we'll just do it obediently, He will smack it with that extra sauce. Bam! 
And it will have such an impact on the people around us. And it will give glory to God. Do you realize you have that? And if you're not exercising it, you are missing out on one of the most incredible experiences of being a human being. is to be used by God powerfully beyond explanation. Something makes you feel alive when that's going on. And if you haven't experienced it, you haven't lived. And so Peter affirms every one of us has that gift to steward. And here's what it says, in various forms, meaning not every teaching gift is the same. You might have the same gift as someone, but you'll wear it a little differently. You will add to it your special flavor, and that's what makes the church so rich. I mean, aren't you glad that when Pastor Frank or Pastor Matt get up here to preach, they don't sound exactly like I do or go exactly the same ways that I go? Aren't you glad about that? They're so different, and as a result, you get a variety even from the pulpit, but it's the same gift of preaching. It's the same with you. You don't have to be like anybody else at this church, but you have to be fully who you're supposed to be. That's what it means to discover your gift. And it also says in verse 11, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. When I preach here, it's not me just trying to persuade you. I believe in faith that somehow God will use what I'm saying to do a greater work than I can imagine. That's not a delusion of grandeur. But I know that my life has been changed permanently by certain sermons which I believe the preacher never had a clue was having that effect on me. When you see this, it speaks of divine commitment, meaning I should do it as though I'm doing it for God. But also, if I'm doing it and God's the one energizing it, then I should also have divine expectation. I'll do it as though I'm doing this for God. In other words, no half-hearted ministry at this church. When you minister, you do it seriously with everything you've got, but you also do it expecting that as I'm obedient, something more is going to happen than at face value. You know, you watch videos of Slam, what Grip does every Monday night. You might walk home just thinking, all right, I helped a bunch of kids have some fun with some games. You think that's all that's going on? It's just a bunch of kids having fun with games? You go downstairs to watch our seeds ministry and you think, oh, I helped some kid make a little paper hand puppet out of origami today. You know, if you think that's all that happened, you're missing it. In the process of doing those mundane things, God is doing something you'll never be able to calculate through your efforts. Divine expectation. And then it says, if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. That's divine empowerment. Meaning, I'm not expecting to have to do it with just my strength. There have been times when I got a speaking invitation that falls on a date right after I got done with another retreat. Back to back. And yet, I feel the strong leading God wants me to go. But in my flesh, I'm saying, last thing I want to do is go to another retreat. It's so tiring. But I'm reminded that when I obey God, I calculate it not based on how I'm feeling, but on the faith that every time I obey God, He will supply the necessary power. Some of you are terrified that I might come to your house for dinner and really challenge you to go to Africa with us. That's like the last thing you want to do, and you're so you're always dodging, right? But let me tell you something. That thing which you think you can't do, if you do it in obedience to the Lord, you'll be amazed what you can do. He will energize every act of obedience done in His name. And sometimes the thing you think you can't do, it makes you feel so confident when you see the Lord empower it. And if God is really strengthening you, then what that also speaks to is divine ambition, doesn't it? Because it says, I'm not just going to do what I can do, I'm going to do what God can do. 
I don't want to just build a school. I want to transform the next generation of people in a country. It's that kind of divine ambition because we believe in faith that God is energizing this. And so in review, what does a good church do? What should Harvest do to be a good church? Well, we got to pray. And if we're going to pray, if we're going to pray more than out of drudgery, listen, brothers and sisters, you got to listen to me. You've got to be sane and sober to do it. You've got to cast off the seductions of all these other things that control your thinking and your worldview. And you've got to get right with God. Because if you don't think the way God wants you to think, prayer will never be a vital part of your life. And you'll miss out on so much. Weed out those seductions that have caused you to be stuck where you are. And learn to pray with us. A good church loves. And you'll remember... That it doesn't just love casually. It's not a sentimental love like, I love you. It's like, I'm going to love you if I have to strain like Mark Phelps to give you that one last, this is it, man. You might kill me after this, but I'm going to give you one more act of love. I don't care if my head comes crashing into the side of the pool. Love that is strenuous and generous. Because if we love like that, we'll gain the capacity or the space in our hearts to overlook one, one another's imperfections. It'll create space there for one another. A good church welcomes hospitality. Every time it's offered and accepted, builds relationships. What's the formula, everyone? Open homes plus open hands equals open hearts. I feel like I'm teaching seeds. But that's a good thing for us to remember. And finally, a good church serves. I want to turn the 80-20 rule upside down, put it in a plastic bag, and throw it out with next week's garbage. I think that's a terrible thing that happens in most groups. At this church, if you are not serving, you're, you're robbing us. You are stealing from us. We need you. You have something you can do, which no one else can do as effectively as you can. Would you please find out what that is and help us pull this wagon? We cannot build this church with 20 committed people. We're going to build this church with you, or we're not going to build it at all. Are you hearing me? And if you're hearing my voice, and you have no active role at all in this church, except to eat what is served and to listen to what is said, then I want you to know it's not about guilt. It's about massively missing out on one of the most amazing things about being human. It is to feel God coursing through you and using you. And there's nothing in the world that feels like that. And I hope you accept that invitation to not be a, a bench warmer forever, but to get on the field. If I'm the coach, it's an open invitation. Clear the decks, clear the benches. I want everyone on the field. And you're invited to come and help. And if we have this kind of church, Imagine what it will be like for us to be part of it. How energized you'll feel, how supported you'll be as you continue being committed to God in a really hostile and unfriendly world that doesn't love the things of God. You'll be able to go the distance with the church like that behind you. Amen? Why don't we bow for prayer? I'm going to invite the praise team to come up and close us out.
There's a lot in that passage, a lot. And I don't expect you simply to remember everything. But if you're going to walk away with one thing, it is this. None of us are going to do this alone. The only way we're going to finish this journey as Christians, joyful and victorious, is to do it together. That is why Peter didn't write to just one person. He wrote to the church to say, this is how you must be, because life is tough when you're an alien in a strange land. We're going to need each other more than you'll ever know. And we can't build a strong church without you. So if this is going to be a good church, then it has to begin with you and not with the church. You have to pray. You have to be a loving person. You need to be welcoming and make room in your heart for others. And you can't sit and watch. You have to serve. Because if you will do that, and if the rest of us will join you, this will be a phenomenally healthy church. A church worth going to. So wherever that leaves you, I'm going to invite you now to respond to your God who calls you to this. And speak what you need to speak and hear what you need to hear. And then we'll close with a song. Lord God, there seems to be a world of difference between a pretty good church and a truly good church. And so we ask in humility that you would make us a truly good church kind of church that changes things and that brings glory to Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for each person who has heard this message today, that Holy Spirit, you will somehow reach deep down into that part which human speech cannot reach and waken and quicken something deep inside each of us that makes us want to respond to these words that you've spoken. Lord, some of us are stuck and we need your help. Help us to find a desire for prayer, to be more loving and welcoming towards others, to get over that first amount of inertia and learn to serve and contribute. Help us, God, to be more like you. Silence us, Lord, when we're tempted to just blame or judge the church, for we are the church. Let it begin with us. Change us and then change harvest. And let not a single person be left out from this good work which you're doing. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.